Hi, I'm David Fuller, and this is the Yacht Business Podcast. In this crossover episode, I chat with Justin Chisholm. Justin is a sailing journalist and host of the Yacht Racing Podcast. We discuss the way in which technology has impacted the sport of sailing from a media and communications point of view, and what might happen next. So David Fuller, um, we're doing something a bit different this week. Um, This is going to go out on both my podcast and your podcast. Let's start by just explaining who we are for our respective audiences. I'm Justin Chisholm. I'm a a yachting journalist, and we've known each other for a a little while now through various um, projects, um, our passion for for sailing. Um, And I've been running the Yacht Racing podcast for, um, well, a few years now, kind of on and off, but um, gained a bit of momentum in in the last year or so. So, David, introduce yourself. So I'm David Fuller. I'm a part-time sailing media person, I guess. Uh, I used to write quite a lot. I had a relatively successful blog uh, called Yacht Sponsorship, which was focused on the commercial side of the sport. And that's that's kind of where I got in, how I got into it and, and where I focused. I was, I was much less about the what the wind was blowing and who was first to the top mark and, and a bit more around the rip as a bit more around the commercial side. And I, I walked away from that for various reasons, and I, I guess we can get into that. And now I've restarted a, a new podcast, which I'm calling uh, Yacht Business, which is focused on similar things, but I'm also looking at how emerging or disruptive technology uh, impacts the space, the, the marine industry in general, but also professional sailing, which is how we got together and got to know each other. You have a a pretty strong technical background as well. Just talk a little bit about that because I, I, I kind of regard you as a bit of a guru when it comes to blockchain and, and these various technologies that have emerged recently. And I, I consult with you fairly regularly to put me yeah, straight. So I, I guess digi- digital technology as opposed to you know materials technology or engineering technology, I uh, certainly you know can't compete with anyone who's talking about the nitty-gritty design paths of America's Cup boats, but certainly my background is is marketing and and business. And you know, since since the internet existed, since I saw that Mosaic first displayed at my university <laughs> way back in you know the early nineties, I've had a, a passion for how digital technology can be used um, from a media point of view uh, and from a communications, I guess, generally from a communications point of view. So whether that means you know social media or whether that means a, a YouTube channel or a or now as as you say moving into more <laughs> what they're now calling Web three, which is sort of blockchain and and other technologies around that, whether it be the Internet of Things or five G Internet or machine learning or these these types of of tech, digital technologies. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I. I like to play <laughs> things like that. Things like the metaverse. The last time we spoke was to was for you to kind of clue me in. I think on the metaverse and how that might affect things. That were I don't think we came to any strong conclusions, but that's that's a looming technology, isn't it? The metaverse is a, is fairly ill defined at the moment, and you know there's lots of people who have a, have an idea as to what they think the metaverse is. 
originally the the word was coined by an an author called Neil Stevenson who mentioned the word first in a book called Snow Crash. And I don't think what his version of it was, even though he's building his own metaverse now, he's got his own company and he's building his own version of the metaverse. Um, So for some people it's just uh, a game. It's like an immersive VR game. For some people, it's a bit more like Second Life. I'm not sure if you ever ever come across that particular space, but it was a virtual world that people could literally have a second, a second virtual life. And you know, for others, it's it's this. I guess the the end goal is this sort of holodeck style reality where you 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 know exist in in a 3D world, a bit like Ready Player One or or the Star Trek holodeck, but we're nowhere near that yet. Uh, I think the metaverse right now is a sort of a mainly a gaming space, um, but there are some really interesting applications for it in education, uh, and there's also some very interesting applications for it in the healthcare sector. And and so you know, I think there will be some user cases that are that will come to pass. How it relates to the marine industry, I'm really not too sure. <laughs> so here's here's my view of how it might exist how i'd like it to evolve is um i've worked a lot with the ocean race over the years the volvo ocean race as it was um we got very excited about 3d cameras on the boats that could give us this this immersive um view of what it was like to be blasting along on a, a volvo 70 or a vo 65 in the southern ocean and spray everywhere and you you could almost picture yourself standing in the cockpit that's what I want the metaverse to do for me. I want to be on the back of of that boat. I want to be, I want to be standing next to Ben Ainsley on his AC seventy five as he as he wins the next America's Cup. Is there any chance of that? Do you think? Uh, it could be possible, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you'd render it, but the the graphics engines are getting um, getting better and better. Uh, I know that Volvo actually had a, a simulator, didn't they? One of these sort of capsules that you could get into and it would spray water on your face and throw you around as you watch the as you watch the film uh yeah it was it was kind of like the like the disney world experience um or warner brothers experience where you you jump into the back to the future car and go zooming over buildings and stuff um funnily enough i never actually got in it but but people who did really <laughs> enjoyed the experience and yeah it did used to like spray with a little water but not quite like the fire hosing the crews used to get, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I think that's a that's a possibility, but we're we're a way off, and the the processing power probably needs to uh, come up a bit. Um, you know, most of the metaverses that are around at the moment are pretty clunky, pix, low resolution, pixelated sort of experiences. And, um, you'll need you'll need five G or or better in order to you know stream something like the Volvo Ocean Race or the America's Cup in anything close to real time. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think more interestingly, I've actually asked some questions around how weather in the metaverse would work. For example, whether whether it would even have weather, and if it did, uh, you know, what climate would you have? Does the whole metaverse have the same climate, or does it have the climate of where you are in the real world there's some there's some interesting interesting questions around that although i know that there are scientific projects going on at the moment that there's a digital twin of the oceans that i think the eu are trying to build they're trying to you know take data that's uh, from the real world and mirror 
the oceans in order to, you know, uh, pr- make simulations to predict what weather systems might look like in the in the future, or what marine life, you know, might look like in the future, or you know, whether the seaweed will continue to grow, or whether the fish will die, and all that sort of stuff. So I think again, if you take away the sort of consumer gaming element of some of these technologies and and apply them specifically to, you know, research or or something like that, then then maybe maybe a metaverse has more application for that. I, and maybe you know more about this than me. That I'm sure that the America's Cup teams are using simulators, aren't they? They are for sure. And that and that phrase, digital twin, I want to come back to in a sec because I hear that now a lot from the from the America's Cup teams from a design point of view um, when they're creating the boat. But David, I think we're maybe we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves here. We've yes. kind of leapt into the future. What we talked about doing was 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 exploring a little bit just how technology is already influenced the sport of sailing and i think we're, we're really looking at the professional end of things here because that's always been been my focus and you know one one way um that i saw it impact was was when the i sat down with the weather router for the ocean race uh gonzalo infante um and i interviewed him for a piece about you know how do you how do you plan the route of the next race and and they basically ran you know masses and masses and masses of simulations to try and make sure that the boats could arrive in a stopover port in a in a feasible time scale um because obviously there's forward planning that goes into into all of these stopovers and you know he i I imagine it was running on his laptop but you know in reality it was running on a on a massive um I, i i would have called it mainframe back in the day but i guess it's a a massive cloud of computing power um, that IBM were providing. And and they'd actually bought, I think, at that stage, weather.com. Um, and, and he said it just allowed him to do so much more and be so much more precise. Uh, do, do you remember that happening? or There's sort of there's a bunch of technologies that have enabled that, um, including IoT, uh, so sensors, for example, have become a lot smaller and they use less battery power. So you can put more of them out there in more places. Uh, and, it, you know, again, satellite technology, the, the amount you, know, you can actually bring that data back uh, from wherever it's being um, recorded. And so you have a lot more you have a lot more data and you have a lot more tools to be able to process that data. I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or, or longer, you would have a, a, a number of very large expensive weather stations that were collecting information and perhaps not being able to collate that in a in a way that that all made sense whereas now you know you've got thousands i I was was talking to someone last week about a a project called yachts for science and there's thirteen thousand super yachts in the world now each one of those super yachts has sensors on it that that can you know record or um, sense weather data, and if you can collate that, then then suddenly you've got so many more data points than you than you used to, or you've got history from the Sydney Hobart yacht race, or you've got history from the round the world race, or you've got history from the record attempts, and you can put all that together into a model, and you've got a lot more um, if you've got the processing power, as you say, uh, you've got a lot more um, data points, and therefore I guess you've got a much better uh, accuracy from your for your forecasts. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, certainly I was always amazed with the ocean race that Gonzalo was able to, you know, give very accurate predictions of when boats were going to arrive into ports, you know, even two weeks ahead of time. Um, and I guess he was working with the Polar. I guess it got easier with the, with the, the advent of the one design boats because the then it was only one Polar he was looking at for the VO65s. Um, and that was the second race, I think. So it would be starting to get pretty accurate by that point. Um, but what I, I was think really that's, it? that's kind of interesting. I, I remember listening to Russell Coots talk about the the giant trimaran that, that Oracle had. And I remember him he telling a story of the engineers telling him that he wasn't going fast enough, that he was, you know, that they knew exactly how, how fast the boat could go in a certain wind, uh, wind condition or a certain uh, way, you know, wave state. And he was, he, he was sort of jokingly sort of saying that these engineers had never actually stepped foot on the thing and they didn't realise just how scary it was as it creaked and got up yeah. to speed. You know, their model was telling them that, he could push it further, and he was like every bone in his body was saying, "There's no way I can go any faster." <laughs> yeah, I've got the reverse of that story—a personal sailing experience, sailing at Cow's Week, the year that that Silk did its massive nosedive. We had 50 knots of breeze while the fleet was out racing, and we were sailing a Humphreys 30, designed by Rob Humphreys, and he was on board. Um, and we <laughs> we went round the windward mark, took off across the Solent with with a. a a reef in the main, which was the, the most reefs we could put in, the smallest headsail we had up. And I forget what speed we were doing, but we were a lot faster <laughs> than we'd ever been. And he turned to me and he said, it's not supposed to go this fast. <laughs> I said, Rob, that's not helpful right now. <laughs> so that was back, the reverse. Back when speed was determined by waterline length. I, absolutely, absolutely. It was a, a fascinating, exciting day out. But just going back to Gonzalo, I mean, that the... the the significance of him being able to to predict that accurately meant that um, it wasn't just convenient for everybody to know when the boats were coming in. The race organization were booking flights based on his information, were booking hotel rooms based on his information. So there was a, a you know there was a risk to all this. There was a risk that the right people wouldn't be there if he if he if he got it wrong. So um, good use of good use of that that technology. Well, I think that's also interesting in, in our field, sort of, um, you know, to, to bring it around to the, the comms side of things and the media side of things. They must be using that type of predictive uh, technology for TV schedules, for example, um, you know, to know when to run a race so that, it, you know, it fits within the TV window. Or if they know that the Sunday is going to be really calm, they'll they'll bring it forward. And I'm thinking of something like GP here. I know that they've you know, raced on a Friday and a Saturday, knowing that the wind is, is not necessarily going to be there on the Sunday. So, you know, these types of predictions and forecasts impact every aspect of the of the of the show. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think I think you're right about Sail GP. There's probably a few people listening who will who will moan and groan about um, Sail GP's ability or inability to to get that right. Um, there's been a few occasions, I think, where. In Denmark, there was no racing on the Saturday, and nobody could understand why they didn't go to the Friday. And you know, but it's 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 more complicated than than just that. Um, so you say I was an an early adopter, but I think you're more of an early adopter than me when it comes to some of these things. So you've you've had a you had a podcast really early on. 
you've dabbled with things like um, e-magazines on iPads. You've played around with, uh, yeah, all, all kinds of different media to get to to get to your audience. So um, go back to how how is it? Cha- so how's the podcasting changed since the really early days and you were doing it? Well, I think let me answer a different question first of all. I think my job as a as a sailing journalist the way i do my job has changed dramatically since i kind of reinvented myself a long time 20 odd years ago as a as a sailing journalist and back then you could if you were good enough you could pitch a magazine editor of which there were plenty and say hey i'm thinking about going to cover the melge's 24 worlds it's going to be down at key west um and you could you could get a commission from them which would pay enough to fly out there, stay in a hotel, not a, not a particularly swanky one, um, cover the event and still make some money out of it. Now, those days changed pretty quickly. Um, the magazine industry globally has taken a massive hit and there are so few sailing magazines left now um, and the ones that pay any money are e- even fewer. Um, so that meant a complete switch around for me that, that I needed to be able to interview people not so much cover events but i needed to be able to interview the key players in the sport and of course the advent of of things like skype and we're going back you know a long way here but it it kind of changed everything because suddenly i could interview russell coots in in new zealand when i was sitting at home in the uk um and i and i could write those stories and it immediately changed just just everything um so i think that even those kind of what we regard now as basic technologies have, have made a big change to the way sailing communications works. And it's not ju- obviously not just me. Everybody is, has been able to benefit from that. But, but certainly, yes, I, I, I was a, I, I'm a bit of a tech, techie geek. I love my gadgets. I love the iPad when it came out. Um, I love the, the iPhone too. I love the idea of podcasting. Um, and I kind of wanted in to all of that. Um, so yeah, the, the podcast came first, which which I, I did with um, with a friend and, and colleague of mine, Andy Rice, which I'm sure listeners will will know from his various uh, writings and, and websites and whatever. And, and we really we started a podcast called Sailing Talk, and it was just the two of us talking for 15 minutes each week, and just uh, what did we think? You know, we would we would pick a topic and we would talk about it. Maybe an event that just happened, maybe somewhere we'd been. Um, David, whether anybody ever listened to it, I have no idea because back <laughs> then you hadn't, you had really had no statistics. Um, right. and, and we, we did it really as a calling card. It was a, it was a business yeah. card for us to say, Hey, we're, we're two sailing journalists and we kind of think we know what we're talking about enough to, to do this. Um, and, and again, whether that ever benefited us, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. The iPad magazine was, was a really interesting thing for me. And I, was in kind of in disbelief that when the iPad came out and the technologies emerged that you could somebody like me could produce a an interactive magazine on the iPad and everything on the iPad was cool back then right it all looked fantastic the photographs looked amazing because the resolution was was better than anything else at that point and I was able to do it and I I thought oh I, I, it can't be just me there must be all of these big magazines must be doing exactly what I'm doing and I spoke to Matt Sheehan one day and I showed him what I, what I was producing. And he just 
he burst out laughing and he said, "Oh, he said I've been trying to, I've been trying to persuade Yachting World to do this for, for years, and you're going to steal a march on everybody. You're going to, you're going to." So, my idea—I know I'm talking a lot here—but my idea was to be less of a writer and more of an editor. And I recruited Bob Fisher and Andy Rice and a, and a few other of the sailing journalists, and they wrote monthly columns for me. I think I even wrote you something once in the back you, of the day. You absolutely did. Yeah, you you wrote on the on the business side of things. So, two things I learned from it: one, it, it was incredibly popular. We had a, a hundred thousand downloads of the app, which is you know, even by today's standard, is, is a huge take-up. That's when it was a free magazine. Right. And I tried various models of, of monetizing it through advertising and then through um, charging a subscription. And, and the reality is that I think it probably is possible to, to monetize that. But as a single individual trying to do everything, it, the workload is, is, was, was just too high. Yeah, because I think even even though the technology has moved on in in many many places, creating original content, good original content is still time consuming and expensive and hard. Yeah, it is. It is, and 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 in the in the world that I wanted to play in, in the you know leaning towards the professional end of things, um, finding the people to write for you that that are expert enough to do it, and being able to afford them is. Um, is an expensive so that was sail racing magazine and it, it lasted a, a few years i had a, a few stumbles and restarts on it and eventually um decided to pull the plug largely because i was offered roles with the ocean race and the america's cup and various other things that were you know as a freelancer the temptation to to take us <laughs> a regular decent payment is uh you know you got to pay the bills you got to pay the mortgage and put food on the table so um but i don't regret doing it and i and i i think it was it was well received at the time um, so i think that I was think this, that was the hardest the hardest part of all of this was the business model you know there there was the the sailing professional sailing fan base is not massive you know, it's you, you look at all the social media likes, and I think you know you're lucky if if you're you're lucky if you're getting into the hundreds of thousands. You know, um, it's certainly not. It's certainly still a niche a niche sport, and and from that point of view, there's also a limited number of advertisers. You know, there's there's a limited number of <laughs> watch companies or bits. Um, so the advertising model is is sort of tough, especially if you're coming to it new, like I was. I mean, you at least had some track record and reputation, whereas I, when I started my first blog, I was completely un, unknown. And I had traffic, but I didn't have – the way the advertising model worked was that it was based on views and numbers rather than the quality of the people who were looking at, at, the, at the site. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I stopped it, just because I couldn't make the – I couldn't make it work from a business model point of view. And I think that that has changed in the last few years with whether it's Patreon or whether it's, you know, some other type of um, donation mechanic or whether it's some sort of subscription mechanic that's now everyone has Apple Pay and everyone's used to paywalls because everyone from the New York Times to the FT is now got a, has now got a paywall. So, it was assumed by many fans that the content we were producing should should be free, 
they, they weren't necessarily in a place to pay for it. Whereas I think that's changed now. And there are more people who are willing to pay a couple of bucks here or there or to, you know, subscribe for a you know, few pounds a month to to get access to the content that they that they want. Have you found is is that ring true for you as well? Yes. And I think you said something interesting. You said it was niche, you know, sailing's niche. And what I've learned is that niches niche can be good. Yeah. Because niches are where people have passion for something. And when they have passion for it, if they're getting good content, they're, they're often willing to pay for it. Whereas I think the more general you go, the more mainstream you go, then people, they don't have that passion. It's too broad. Um, so that's that's certainly what I've been focusing on recently. I mean, the the, the yacht racing podcast um, is an unashamedly me interviewing people that I find interesting in the sport. Um, and I, I don't, there are certain people who I've not interviewed and it's because I just don't think they're going to be an interesting interview. And it's not because they haven't done anything interesting. Often, often they have, but some people, you know, they're, they're just not good with interviews and, and right. personality wise. And it's, it's kind of unfair to ask them to, to do it. Sure. Um, but that's been, that's been extremely well received. Um, the, again, I've explored charging for it. I've, I've, given in and gone back to a, a free model um and i guess it's my kind of uh, <laughs> my contribution to the to the sailing communication world is we're gonna we're gonna put that out there and it was interesting i mean it was a good year or so after i started that that shirley robertson and tim butt started with with their podcast and tim said oh we're going to competition with you and i said there is no competition in this in this market it's the more people who are doing this at a high level at a, at a a decent level, the better, you know, because yeah, then absolutely. people get used to the idea of sailing podcast. Just because somebody listens to mine doesn't mean they won't listen to yours and vice versa. They almost certainly will listen to, yeah, to both. Yeah, and, and it's a different different style. I mean, I occasionally, I don't listen to it all the time, but I occasionally listen to Barkarati, which is the three guys in Australia, which sure. is a very different podcast altogether because it's absolutely. You know, three hosts and they're talking about the Australian market a lot more than, sailing it's got a completely different season you know it happens in the it happens in december in you know in sydney harbour yeah. not in not in may um, and i love the i love the fact that those guys and i know all all three of them i love the fact that they're doing that because that's a bit more that's what sailing didn't really have it's a bit more like the traditional podcast mainstream podcast model where it's a, a group of guys kind of bantering and i think it's great because we didn't have that before alan block probably was the closest to it with with this uh, i don't know whether he did call it sailing anarchy or, or whether it was the alan block podcast and and that was a bit more like that it was a bit more free form but yeah I, i've adopted a, a a model where i i just interview them i do very little editing if i only edit out coughing fits or occasionally if somebody if somebody uh, swears and i think it's i've got to be careful with apple podcasts because i, I i'm i'm not I don't want to get tagged as um, adult-only content because I'm yeah. sure we have some younger, younger listeners. But I don't, I don't do a massive amount of editing. I just I let the interviews. I, I put the effort into making the interviews strong on the day by preparing the right questions and, and researching the the guests. And I think that's that's what Shirley does really well with with her podcast as well. There's still a lack of diversity in in the comms, isn't there? I mean, there's mostly white guys. 
that are in this business. You know, there's a few women, um, but they're, I mean, there used to be Pierre, you know, had his blog in, um, in Spain and uh, that was incredibly popular sailing, just because yeah. it was, um, you know, for a different, different language in different languages and whatever else. Um, well, France, I guess there's, there's a lot of, a lot of coverage. Um, I don't speak French, so I don't listen to any of that or watch any of that. Um, yeah. Well, the, the guys have done well in France with the, with the tip and shaft podcast. That's an unfortunate name, but you know, they, they created a, a newsletter model before really I'd even heard of the newsletter model. Um, and it's very brief. It's just headlines really more than anything else. Um, it's, I would imagine relatively easy to create on a weekly basis because there's a, a little bunch of them. Um, whether they're making a success out of it financially, I really don't know because you know how could you know? All of us are quite secretive about that sort of stuff. They seem to have a good subscriber base because it, it says at the at the bottom how many subscribers there are. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. We are now available on all platforms, including Apple. Also, check out some of the other podcasts we've mentioned. Justin's Yacht Racing Podcast, Bar Karate, Shirley Robertson's Sailing Podcast, and support the community. Let us know if there's others we've missed. Well, I think the thing that, think. that really pushed the, the change the game for, for people like, like us was social media in the sense that you could suddenly get distribution a lot more easily than you used to be able to. I mean, you driving traffic to a website was always expensive or hard um you know the discovery was was relatively difficult for people to discover new media or new sites or social media and i started my blog around the same time that twitter started and built a, a massive um following on twitter which enabled me to effortlessly sort of send out a a ping that said hey there's a new article up on the website or the, you know there's a new a new piece of content out there, and that model worked incredibly well in terms of building a understanding who the sailing audience was. And I guess it also was a massive boon for rights holders who could suddenly talk directly to their fans without having to go through the magazines or the the newspapers or the TV stations or hoping that you know they get picked up by the news. They could just open the channel directly to the fans, which was a game changer. Yeah, for sure, and and that's what we're seeing more and more of now with with things like Substack, the uh, which is a a newsletter stroke website platform that allows writers of of any genre um, to be able to connect directly with an audience and and to monetize it really easily. They they have a payment system built into the whole thing, and that's the route I've gone down with um, a, a website newsletter called Cup Insider about the America's Cup. And the same thing for SailGP, another one called SGP Insider. And, you know, really, again, it's the, the, I think sometimes the trick is being the first one to do it. And I, I think I think I am the first one on Substack. Um, I did notice that Richard Gladwell ha- has his own site set up. It's not active yet, but uh, Richard from, from SailWorld, who I have you know, a huge amount of respect for, um, so I think people are going to cotton on to that as well, but you know maybe being the first one in is a is a help. Um, 
because the is, other goal is there, a, is there a subscription or a charge for that as a content creator? Um, they take a they take a little uh, fee that you don't pay anything to them directly. They take a fee from from. Oh, what it's a you, commission commission if you're you getting receive. subscriptions. They're taking a, a thing. I've never yeah, liked so those don't... sites just because I like having control of my content, and so I have run my and I'm technically proficient enough to be able to run my own websites and build my own websites. So, um, I, if I can control the the domain and the SEO and the and the con- keep control of the content, then I prefer that than um, than a model like Substack. But um, which 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 I would agree with you, and but you're a, you're a bit of a rare case in that you've got that technical knowledge, and and I I just don't, you know, and it's right. it's expensive to it's expensive to to find, um, and it's time consuming, and and the thing I like about these models is it just lets you write. You just right. You, f- you focus on the writing. But what I've also found is that you write in a slightly different way because you are writing for an audience of people who have subscribed either for free or f- as a paid subscription. And you feel uh, that that kind of personalizes it. You feel a responsibility right. towards them. Um, I think sometimes you write a bit more often and longer than you, you might do normally. Yeah. Um, well, my so site, my old site, I used I used to know the people who read it by name. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, exactly. So I was almost writing directly to a certain person when I was editorializing about someone I I had in mind who was reading it. Um, Absolutely, and I mean, I I get an email every time somebody signs up, and I always open the email and look. I, I mean, nine times out of ten, I don't know who it is, um, but it's, I don't know. It just it's it's interesting to me just to. So to see that, given that given that sailing is uh, something that pe- people are passionate about, why does why is there not more YouTube channels or more Substacks or more TikToks um, around around sailing? Is it? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I know the answer. I, I mean, Matt Sheehan's doing really well with his Planet World um, YouTube YouTube channel. Um, again, we don't know how much how much he's been able being able to monetize that, but I understand he's doing. He's certainly working really hard on it, and he's got, from what I can see, um, a, a high subscriber base for sailing in YouTube terms generally. I don't think it's going to break any records, um, and that you know that's a kind of highly professionally um, produced channel, and then you've got. You know, you've got other people like there's a guy that's on sailing anarchy a lot. Mozzie, Mozzie's himself. just restarted his his channel. Mozzie I think twelve sales, days ago, yeah. he's just he's just restarted his uh, his YouTube channel. So, yeah, which is a, interestingly which is a, enough. Now, if you can hover hover over the bottom of the video and you can see where people are tuning in and tuning out, right? Um, which I did for Sail GP the other day. It was quite interesting. You get this huge spike at the start of the race, and then nothing, and then another yeah. spike at the start of the next race, and then nothing. Yeah, it's, um, that's, that's what I've heard. And I mean, I think with with the Mozzie Sales thing, it's it's interesting. I mean, he's something like eighteen thousand subscribers on on his uh, on his YouTube channel, which you know, it's, it's not. You've got to. I think you've got to carve out a, something different. Right, and and he he's done that. He's focusing on the engineering, technical design piece, which a lot of people love geeking out on. You yeah. Know, even even I, who don't don't necessarily understand it, I can I still like to geek out on some of the some of the videos that he does because um, yeah. I, I find them really really interesting. You know, again, the reason I did mine 
the way well because I know the commercial side that's why I, I can write about the commercial side because that's what I'm what I'm into but I, I you can only have so many generic stories and you know I, I, to a certain degree even though you and Shirley are very different and you, your podcasts are very different there's only so many people that you can talk to without hearing you know John Bertrand's story again or Nick absolutely you know, <laughs> absolutely or um, yeah, and, Ben Ainsley's are... story again or someone else's story again it's the origin story over and over again yeah exactly and I, I you know I I I get an email from Shirley when she's produced an episode and I, I see who it is and I'm like, oh, well, I need to cross them off the list of people I was going to interview because that's <laughs> a waste of time. You know, you can't do that for another couple of years at least. So what's interesting about the podcast is, though, I mean, I think I've got 60 episodes up right now. And even though I haven't put an episode out, this will be the first one for a little while. Um, the, the take up still really strong on the on the back issues on, on the on the, you know, the yeah. previous editions, which I think is. It makes me happy because I try to make them timeless. I mean, you know, other than the Vendee Globe things I did with Conrad Coleman, everything else you could listen to it at any point and, and it would still be pretty relevant because it's just stories about how people came into the into the professional sailing world. Um, so that that's, that's pleasing. I want to quiz you on Digital Twin. Can you, can you give us a... A one-minute explanation or, or shorter of what a digital twin is? Yeah, is it so going think, to be big in the America's Cup? Yeah, so a digital twin is kind of what it sounds like. It's a, it's a virtual or digital model of a physical thing. So, for example, if you have a boat, and I, was taught, I had a really interesting podcast a couple of weeks ago with a guy called Johnny Dodge who is in the super yacht business, but he was talking about how uh, there's, a, there's a yacht yard, St. Lorenzo, I think he said, that build big super yachts. They have now in their in their shipyard an enormous green screen building, green walls, and they put the goggles, VR goggles, on the uh, on the face of the buyer of the owner, and they walk them through a three D real scale model of the boat before it's ever built, um, so they can see where things are laying, how they're laid out, and you can see how big the master cabin is, and you can. Work it, work it all out. Literally walk through an, an wow. a three D replica of the of the boat before it's ever been built, which saves a lot of it saves a lot of money and time and money. If you build a twin of your boat, you know, in a digital world, and you can put it into a physics engine, you know, apply gravity, apply friction, apply whatever the forces are to it, and then you can tinker with it. Yeah, so it's basically a model, a simulation, simulated 3D digital model of a of a real world thing. The cool one now is what they're talking about is digital a digital tw- triplet, and so <laughs> a a digital twin is an absolute mirror of the physical physical thing. The digital triplet and now is uh, got a machine learning AI attached to it that learns from the twin. So that the triplet kind of watches the twin and then suggests changes based on a machine learning AI model, um, and then that can be then applied to the twin, and then that can be applied to the physical, the physical thing. It's um, where, where is that being used? Uh, probably outside of sailing. Where where is that evolved from? That that so that it, it's using it's it's like manufacturing systems, for example. So. Uh, 
what they I, what they're calling it manufacturing 4.0 or industry 4.0. So yeah, for example, if you've got a production line, uh, you've got your physical production line in the factory, and then you've got your uh, physical, you've got your virtual, your digital twin of the production line. So you can you can see that running. And then you create the triplet, which which basically the the machine learning watches the digital twin and says, oh, actually, I'm going to see what happens if I take three people off this production line for ten minutes, and then see what happens. Or I'm going to add, you know, a new machine to this production line and see what happens. So, so if you're de- designing processes that have vari- variables, um, and again, you know, salvos have <laughs> a lot of variables. But um, you know, if you can add or add or take away, change the conditions in the in the triplet as a kind of a. But I'm not explaining it very well. But it, it's it has this element of machine learning and AI attached to it, whereas the digital twin is more of a. I'll, I'll make a physic. Me as a human being will make a change in the digital twin to see what happens. But yes. this this the, the triplet is actually an artificial intelligence machine learning yes. doing that change as opposed to a human. Um, now you've mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning, but, but I just wanted to flag it up as a as a cool technology that's been used in in the marine world. So the company was originally called Oscar, and it's just turned changed into uh, CSEA dot AI. That's the name of the company, CAI. And this is a company that produces the kit that the uh, Imoka boats used in the Vendée Globe to. Um, to look ahead of them at, during the day and at night and spot objects in the water, which the, the skipper, even if he was looking out 24 hours a day, you know, might not be able to spot. So it's like not a, it's like not, a container, container or a whale. Absolutely. And that's exactly the, that's exactly the, the, the example they use. And, you know, there's a, some fantastic testimonies from Jean Lecam and, and people like that who helped develop the whole thing. So, it's kind of what we always said, like, isn't there a system where these boats can stop running into things? Because, you know, this seems crazy. Well, now the technology seems to have caught up with that. Um, and, of course, it can be applied to super yachts. It can be applied to to any vessel um, now. But what was interesting for me was that the the was the fact that it's it's learning from all of all. Every time a system is installed, as I understand it, it what that system learns gets fed back into the into the, 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 the total system. Right. So the more times it sees a whale, the more times it says that is a whale. Yeah. 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 Now, I mean, it's, it's probably an interview I need to do, or maybe you need to do um, further down the line and just, just find out, like, how did they build the database that it's running from now? Because, you know, you, know, you look at the Google cars, we all know they spent a long time teaching them traffic lights and various other things, pedestrians and, and – uh, pedestrian crossings yes 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 yeah, very, so, very interesting although it, i think it can go too far i don't know what your thoughts are on the new ac40 that seems like it could basically <laughs> be sailed by remote control yeah i i i've talked to a few people about this including some america's cup sailors and i think what you're talking about is the video that um that the emirates team new zealand produced with nathan outridge basically talking us through how these this ac40 works and of course, we get excited and say, "All right, well, yeah, sit in the cockpit. Show me what's in the cockpit." And it was kind of just a set of buttons. It was a steering wheel and a set of buttons. And I, I yeah, I, I was, I still think the boat is ultra cool, and I and I love 
everything that's going on with the foiling monohulls. But I was a bit, yeah, there are no ropes on this boat at all. And it just kind of brought it home for me that, yeah, it is, it's become a push button, a push button sport um, at that level, at that level. So, yeah. Well, what, what was your thought? Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you, you could basically just, as I say, sail it via remote control, you wouldn't even have to have a, a skipper necessarily on board. They do, drone, they do drone racing these days, so I'm sure you could do, you know, remote control boats, although that's been around for a long time as well, remote control boats, um, yeah. remote control sailboats. Um, well, the, the, other, the other big area of this is that, that's probably contentious and will aerate the social media channels is the, the ocean race. The Amokas now, um, you know, fully crewed, which is only four people, but that's that's what fully crewed is these days. Um, but the boats will largely be steered by Autohelm. Um, so they're foiling boats. They're traveling at high speed, you know, in the right conditions. And it's a big departure for the race to 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 allow Autohelms. Um, and originally they weren't going to do it. The Autohelms were going to be there for use when you were doing sail changes. So just a a heading control but now they've adopted what was developed for the Vendée Globe these highly sophisticated um, um, robot systems as the skippers are now calling them um, that can steer the boat pretty much as well as a, as a human can um, and Will Harris who's sailing with Boris Herman on the Militia project he said that you know there will be somebody with a with the with the autohelm control in their hand um, and that is what will pass for for helming the boat during this mm. race. So it's um, it's interesting, you know. And I guess the point is that the boats are so high performance now that that's what you have to you do. Would get to, you could probably get to a point where you'd say that the that an auto helm would be better than a human. Oh, you know, I mean, because for it sure. just can process a lot more data a lot more a lot more quickly. The brain, human brain, is not very good at that sort of thing. So, no, for, you know, if you've got IoT sensors on the tips of the foils and on the tips of the rudders and on the top of the mast and you've got all that data being fed into a, into a robot that's saying, well, I'm going to correct by half a, half a degree that a human probably, you know, can't even work it out, you know, if you're yeah. on a wheel or a, or a tiller, how much to correct without having overcorrecting and undercorrecting. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And in, in the Vendée Globe, I mean, the... the the Autohelm steers about 95% of the race. That was a, a big shock to me when I found that out a few years ago. Um, but the systems are so advanced now that they um, they absolutely can steer way better than the way better than the sailors, and especially over prolonged periods. Um, the sailors are really there as as caretakers of the boat, I think, in, in the Vendée, which is uh, I'll probably get a slap from one of the skippers for saying that, but. But essentially, they're there to, to to do all the stuff that that a robot couldn't. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> uh, it does bring it into question. What? 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 Why are you doing it? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why people are following it? Well, um, that's right. And it'll be interesting to see this time around what the response of the sailing public is to these uh, Imoka boats, where the crews are enclosed. Um, Kind of getting off our, our technological topic a little bit there, but let me drag it back then. One. No, thing I think I, it, I think that to... machine learning for auto helms is definitely the sort of technology that'll impact the sport um, as well. But um... yeah, you and I have talked about DAOs, and I've forgotten what it is. Something autonomous, decentralized autonomous organization. Yeah, so DAOs are a big thing 
It's all linked in with blockchain, but we're going to have a DAO sailing team in CellGP if we believe their marketing hype. I know you're cynical. Um, so I'm not cynical. Tell- I think I think the idea of a, I, an idea of a team that's owned by the fans is a is a pretty cool idea. The ultimate DAO is actually a sailing club. It's not a new idea, right? A sailing club is effectively a DAO. It's it's got members. It's got a committee that's voted for by the members. You know, it's it's an entity that is uh, you know sort of got a democratic uh, structure to it, and you know operates in a, to a certain to a constitution or a set of policies. So there are there are real world uh, facsimiles of of DAOs. The, the difference with the DAO, which I think is a bunch of techies looking for a solution, is that, you know, why does it have to be in the blockchain? There are real-world facsimiles, and I'm really not sure why you couldn't do it in a non-blockchain environment. There's nothing stopping you building a team that would be owned by the fans um, in a in a traditional sort of thing. The only thing that blockchain technology really brings to a DAO is the concept of anonymity and um so basically, you can be an identity on the blockchain and participate in an organization without necessarily being um, known who you are. But there's a lot of fine print that I don't understand about the sale GP one, for example. You know, it's what exactly, what decisions exactly would the DAO holders be allowed to make? Would it, it's based on near protocol? So I'm assuming you need to hold the near token in order to. To participate, and does that mean that if somebody has eighty percent of the tokens, they get eighty percent of the votes? In which case, it's you know, not what's the point? Yeah, and um, yeah, I've got a lot of question marks around it. Not necessarily cynical, skeptical, shall we say? Skeptical. There we go. We'll go for skeptical. But it, it, it seems like a good way of raising money, doesn't it? I mean, potentially you, you yes. could raise a lot of money very quickly for a for a sale GP team. Yes. Uh, uh, Again, you've you've got to work out whether or not there's any overlap between the people who have blockchain or um, cryptocurrency wallets and understand how loading a cryptocurrency wallet using normal dollars or pounds or euros into that wallet, then converting it to a near token and then investing that into a, you know joining a DAO via Discord. Um, it's an incredibly complicated and technical user journey. Um, and whether or not the fans of CLGP match the people who are comfortable with that user journey remains to be remains to be seen. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, I love I love the fact that they're they're trying it. It's great that it's our sport that's trying these sort of things. And uh, I'm, we can be skeptical. I, I agree. We shouldn't be cynical. I, I think we're yeah, trying think to golf, stay away. I think from golf that. is trying a similar kind of thing. I think there's a there's a golf token and a and a sort of a golf blockchain golf club. Um, and I'd, I'd be surprised if yeah, I'd maybe for some of the football clubs would be looking into it. But every single Formula One team has a crypto partner. You know, there, there's certainly a lot that's go, that's going on in that space. Um, Again, probably not the cryptocurrency side, but more of the blockchain side. Yeah, so it's it's a technology that's certainly going to impact in in ways we probably haven't even considered or thought of yet. Yeah. Okay. No. So I was going to say that I think you know one of the things that technology changed from a media side of things was 
somebody didn't have to have the investment of starting a magazine or a printing press or having to buy a license, a broadcasting license. You know, anybody could suddenly become a media personality or an influencer, blogger, however you want to define that. Well, when I when I started my blog, there were certain rights holders that wouldn't recognize me as media. I had, I had to say that I was working for the Times, or I had to say that I had a you know a credential, or they wanted to know how many millions of people were looking at my website before they'd offer me a a, a pass to the media center, and that and that slowly changed around that period. You know, certain rights holders, I think. People like the Extreme Sailing series looking forward sort of said, this is the future, this is the way we're going to get our message out there is via these independent social social media or, uh, yeah, bloggers. Um, certainly they were the first series that gave me credentials. Um, yeah. It took the America's Cup a little bit longer. I'm not sure what your experience of that was like. Yeah, I, I kind of went at it a slightly different way in that I had written part-time for some of the magazines for a couple of years. So... I was lucky enough to have the body of work, not that it was a big body of work, that I could. Um, I applied for a Yachting Journalists Association membership and got that. And, and once you've got that, accreditation gets a lot easier for sure. But yeah, I do remember early on struggling a little bit for, for credibility, which I think is which I think is fair. Um, it's interesting to me that just going back to Mozzie Sales. Um, you know, he's been given access, um, and I think quite rightly, for the the America's Cup Recon Cloud, which is a kind of limited number of media outlets have been given access to that. That only came about really because he wrote a rant on the Sailing Anarchy um, forum about, you know, basically how crap it was and um, how disappointed he was in the whole thing. And I think somebody approached him and said, well, you're only seeing a tiny fraction of it and why don't you have a look um and of course then he said well i've been given access now and look it's actually really cool there's a lot of stuff on here it just needs to be curated which i think is a fair point and he's gonna do a you know hopefully a a good job of of doing that um but you know he's he's a part-timer you know and this is you know should we be limiting these things to people who are full-time and and doing it professionally i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is i I think I suspect as long as the quality is high and consistent, then you then you leave them to it. Yeah, if he's got if he's got if he's got an audience, and then then you know why not gets it out there. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of the the complaint from all of my photographer friends because when I first started in this business, I made a point of making friends with the photographers because as much as I pride myself on being a good writer, a, a good photo with your piece will uh, will enhance it massively so but they all complain that um everybody's got a digital camera now like everybody thinks they're a photographer uh, i guess it's a little bit the same as everybody's got a computer everybody's got a keyboard everybody thinks they can write i think the number of people taking photographs has dropped off dramatically because the that's a difficult game to make any any serious money in yeah absolutely but i guess the the, the again the business models have changed uh, enormously as well so you know again yeah. you, you you used to have this concept of you know if it's on the front cover of a of a big magazine and you got paid a certain amount and is the is the hero image on the top of a blog article you know worth the same um yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting question which i don't know well, the I, answer i don't know the answer to yeah i think i think the way that that whole 
photography model has changed is, is you're right it used to be the cover shots and and now what you find is there's a probably five or maybe if we're being generous 10 photographers out there who are hired by the organization of the america's cut the ocean race whatever it is and part of their role is to distribute those images as widely make them as widely available as possible yeah so on a regular basis i get a link sent to me in the email to carlo bolinghi's photos or uh, you know any number of the the other photographers whose names have immediately gone out of my head now i'm recording a podcast um so but why would i why would i consider paying for them i mean i'm 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 getting them for free slightly different for the magazines i think but um yeah the models just changed completely all right, well, David. It's been. I think it's been interesting. Hopefully, the the listeners do too. It's a little bit of a departure for us to to do this kind yeah, of cross pollination, a, cross, a crossover crossover episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been fun for me. So uh, let's let's leave it at that, David. Thanks a million for for joining me, and um, I hope your audience enjoys hearing from me, and I'm sure my audience will enjoy hearing from you. That's great, Justin. That's been a real pleasure. That's it for this episode. Let us know what you think about some of the issues discussed. If there's no driver, is it a sport? Where is the next generation of sailing influencers coming from? Find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Should we have a Discord server as well? 